This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Kia welcome to Bookings with Moan Raat and Ruth Todd. Today, two very different books. The most beautifully illustrated book that will really knock your socks off from Gavin Bishop on Atua, Māori Gods and Heroes, and a memoir from Megan Dunn, Art Writer. Megan Dunn has had art reviews, criticism, essays and stories widely published and highly acclaimed. She's also had a number of awards and residences, all which seem to have very long names, (laughs) the latest being (laughs) the uh, Surrey Hotel Steve Braunius Memorial Writers' Residency Award at the Louis Johnson New Writers' Award and last year, I think, the Emerging Writers' Residency at the Michael King's King Writers' Centre, which has all helped to um, bring us her latest book, Things I Learned at Art School. Kia ora, Megan. Kia ora, Maren. And what a, what, a, what a treat it was to read this. And... I was really interested in in how you decided to structure this collection of essays and pieces into a into a whole because you say that you kind of went against your artistic <laughs> tendencies to want to sort of collage it um, and do a chrono- chronological um, uh, structure. Yes, well. You've you've got right to the heart of a pertinent question there. I structure I think of as my weakness, my my terminal weakness, and I suppose the structure of this book was decided in a way between myself and my publisher Claire Murdoch at Penguin Random House New Zealand. She mooted to me that a memoir about my own life would work and that's something whilst I was writing personal essays I certainly hadn't thought of writing about my life at length as a, as a book project. And a refrain I had from art school that was that is in the essay submerged artist had always stuck with me and it comes from a very pertinent tutor I had that we were often we were often in locked horns together I guess over our ideas but her point of view was that in the world of video art which was what I was studying at art school you could put the end at the beginning the beginning in the middle and the middle at the end and so <laughs> that's a kind of riddle that has stayed with me and defined my education and I guess my life, which has happened during post-modernism. You know, there's an old, old word from the past, a blast from the past. No one likes the word post-modernism these days. I'm not sure they ever did. So no, I found myself no. with this book in a strange little situation where I was going to put the beginning at the beginning, the middle in the middle, and the end at the end, which is how a human life happens. Am I right or am I right? 
I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, it's happening to me in that order, I must say. Um, <laughs> the thing that strikes, well, struck me most, and I think it does most people, is the voice, which is your voice. It's, it's not a, a, an authentic voice. But um, it's, it can be funny and sad all at the same time. It's self-deprecating. It's often black. But mm. it seemed to me that over your life, that voice, you know, your way of dealing with things must have been a weapon and a shield at times. The voice is something that as soon as I, I turn to writing from the perspective of the I and my criticism and everything I was doing, things just seem to lock and load. People seem to read it. I seem to be able to write it. Goodness only knows I've resisted it, partly because I think my education was all about, you know, a different intellectual rung of the ladder where we're really talking from another place, not from personal colloquial experience, which is where my voice is, is most comfortable and seems to rove freely. Yes, I think writing the book, I really became aware how my humour and this quipping um, aspect of my character, I do, I've got a lot of pissy one-liners. I've always had that. I mean, when I was about 13, I was put in the debating team and they put me all the time as third speaker so I could pick up all the rebuttal. I was just really, really good at that. I was really good at one-liners and wisecracks. And this book has made me think about how that serves me and how that limits me as a person as well as a writer. I think there's something of the tease in it there too. I spent a little bit of time when I was much younger working in and around the sex industry. I was often on the periphery of it as a, as another wisecracker and observer. Um, but it seems to me that one of the things I like to do as a writer is give you the tease, you know, take you somewhere, lift up a bit of skirt but then withhold and show you something else. Um, and I think there's a lot of that in, in these essays and anecdotes as well. I've been very aware of the wee few reviews I've seen so far. There's been a suggestion that these aren't essays. These aren't shaped like an essay. And then I thought, hmm, I think that's the tease at work. <laughs> well, it's, it, it definitely is what you do because... At the same time, you're, uh, I'm being amused by you. Um, there's a, you know, oftentimes I'm feeling really quite sad and, and worried. You know, I can see the red-headed girl who was being bullied. I, I worry yeah. about your mother as the solo mother who had to go and live with, you know, grandparents, parents, you know, other extended family work, you know, shitty jobs basically to to keep you and you know there's this wonderful wisecracking voice going on but underneath we are all we're all there with you well it's lovely to hear you say that Moran and I think that is you as a female reader too cutting to the chase and I am a writer who likes to cut to the chase a bit myself 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on between the lines there, isn't there? Uh, a recent interviewer had said to me, there's nostalgia at work. And I mean, sure, I guess there is nostalgia at work. But actually, there's quite, there's quite a, a, there's a portrait of class in there. There's a portrait definitely of a single mum and all that that entails and the limitations that that can entail. I find that very heartening that from that story, The Ballad of Western Barbie, you pick up that my mum needs to go and live with her parents for a bit to sort herself out and I'm there with her. Because that's not explicated in that piece. But yes, there's a portrait of my mum in there too and I think, I hope in some way it's a very beautiful portrait because it's full of empathy for her uh, social situation and just how difficult it is. Um, you know, there are women all across the world now, and, and not just women, at home in lockdowns, in long lockdowns with kids. Some of them have no partners, you know, some some caregivers must be in very perilous situations. And how we all get by is, um, you know, that's the stuff of writing. <laughs> this is the oh, real isn't it, isn't yeah. it? How we get by, how we get by, and, you know, Unfortunately, time doesn't permit me to go into all the all the aspects of your book, but every one of them is enjoyable. You know, your use of pop, or your referring to popular culture that was around in your day, the Smurfettes and the Little Ponies and Strawberry mm-hmm. Shortcakes, the television shows, the songs. Yes, it's nostalgic, but you know, all the time you're building up this this very clear picture of what your life was like and and why you made the choices or fell into the choices that you made along mm. the way. Some of them were active choices, and whilst I might have thought I was being driven by one set of motivations at the time, hindsight will reveal that something else was at work and at play behind the scenes too. I guess that's one of the joys of memoir. That's why it's it's interesting, as you can have all sorts of levels and layers happening at once. Obviously, at some level, I can never really access again what I thought at seven or even at 27. So there's my voice streaming in now, you know, um, massaging the information into all sorts of new directions. Uh, and I see it, I see it differently over the course of time. I think... Uh, maybe, yeah, it's interesting that people like memoirs. I mean, when my dad and I spoke about writing a memoir, he said, quite rightly, uh, you know, I think of memoirs as being by famous people about something distinctive. And at some level, a lot of readers will think that, you know, that is one common form of the memoir. But everyone has a life story. And this one is mine. I, yes, if I hadn't been commissioned to write it, I don't think I ever would have had the audacity and it's certainly taken me into some inadvertent places. Um, but I'm glad you've picked up on the dark undercurrents because I definitely see my piece about the Smurfs and the genesis of Smurvette as having some wry undertones to it. Oh, indeed. Just to finish, and I hate to finish, but, you know, the last part of it was so moving to me, the loss of your mum. I hate saying loss because we haven't lost them. Um, the death mm. of your mother, and mm. then then your your you know your exploration exploration of art and medical it all mm. sort of tied in so well. 
Yes, well, that is the one essay I didn't know I was going to write when I started this project and that wasn't part of the chronological framework because when I began the book, my mum, whilst she she was ill again, was was hadn't died and, and wasn't due to die in so far as we understood it at the time. So that essay, Art in the Waiting Room, took me by surprise. I had started it when she was well and I was, well, you know, when she was still alive, but, but having to go back in and get treatment for her cancer again, which was a cancer of the blood called multiple myeloma. And I was observing the art in hospital waiting rooms as I've often observed art in waiting rooms across my life and starting to jot down some thoughts on it. And then it just built and built into a much bigger piece than I could have ever imagined. Um, and I, it's it's wonderful to have it in this book, which which has a, partly a portrait of her and some of the ways I remember her best. And you know, I have at least wrapped her life into this little book, and people can uncork it, and she can pop out with some of her great comments. And I've been very warmed by people's responses to that piece about her death, and it just shows how we all share that. We all share this irreconcilable fact that we will lose our own lives and the people we love most dearly. And I guess in writing it, I've come to see that art is about what is irreconcilable. That's where that's where we go to art for. You know, That's what we go to art for, to deal with the irreconcilable and all of its slippery forms. The end. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you so much for writing the book. I know that sounds trite, but um, please, I'm. this is my message to listeners, please go out and find this book and read it. You will find so much in it. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. The book is called Things I Learned at Art School by Megan Dunn. And it's published by Penguin Random House. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Gavin Bishop's stunning once-in-a-generation compendium introduces readers to the pantheon of Māori gods, demigods and heroes and explores Aotearoa's most exciting legends from the creation to the migration. Throughout the narrative, Gavin deftly weaves in contemporary Māori tikanga cultural practices, demonstrating both the spiritual origin and the close, close relationship to science and the natural environment, as well as historical detail about pre-colonial Māori life. Gavin, you've written more than 60 books, I realise now, and I've got quite a few of them, but um, I thought... When you did Aotearoa, the New Zealand story, in um, 2018 and won lots of praise and awards, um, you know, I remember one of the judges said it was a book of enduring significance, a landmark, and I don't know how to describe this one because it seems to go further than that and quite different, of course. How do you see it? How did you, when did you start on this enormous project? It, is an, it was an enormous project, um, but uh, it took me just over a year. Um, I start, when did I start? It, it was, it's being published this year, so I must have started it like at the beginning of last year. Um, and 
the idea, of course, was suggested to me by Penguin Random House. They said that they'd like me to do a a big book. That's a big. That's a book with a big format, large format, um, and twice the number of pages that a normal picture book has. A normal picture book has thirty-two pages. It's got sixty-four. Um, so they sort of established this sort of the boundaries uh, for me, and said we'd like you to look at the creation uh, stories from Māori and, well, ultimately from the Pacific, from the South Pacific. Um, so they sort of set up the, the guidelines. They, they knew what they wanted when they asked me. Well, I'm glad. I'm so glad that they did that because would yeah. you have suggested that? No, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it. Um, they just thought it would be a good idea. Um well, it's more than a good idea. It's absolutely <laughs> breathtaking. Well, the, the stories are fantastic, and my Aren't biggest they? challenge. Yeah, they're fantastic. My my biggest challenge was to find a kind of linear path through those stories because you may or may not know that all these stories are different according to the tribal areas that they come from. So the. Ngāti Awa people and Tainui people and Naitahu people will all have different versions of these stories. And that made it quite difficult. I didn't know quite where to go with that. And so I went back to my great old standby, Anthony Elpers, who wrote a collection of Māori, um, I think it was called Māori Myths and Tribal Legends. And I've had this book for years and years and years. And the reason I use that is that he tells these stories in a linear way. They all flow on from one another. And I wanted that sort of structure. Because I only had 64 pages to tell these stories in, I couldn't, I didn't have any room to veer off in funny directions, um, which I could have easily done. And, and actually, yes. Witty Humaira, in his recent publication of Maori Myths and Legends, um, he does that. He wanders off um, and, and takes sort of, you know, he follows sort of threads of stories that take him away from the kind of linear, central one. Um, but I couldn't afford to do that. Um, they didn't want very much text. The publisher said, no, we don't want a lot of text, but we want the pictures to carry the book um, and you know, it, was a bit of a, it was a tall order it certainly was um, but you could do it they had total faith in you for doing this and and it, it's your illustrative ability and talent um, that really comes out in this book I mean it does in all of your books um, of this size or this is slightly bigger um, than the others big flat um, wonderful books before you even open the cover, <laughs> before you even open it. Um, Luke Kelly came up with the idea of using one of the illustrations from inside the book, uh, plus this amazing overlay um, of little shiny, little glossy line drawings of some of the gods, which you can only see when you tip the cover and it catches the light. I mean, I didn't think of that. That was entirely his idea. And I think it makes the book... It gives Beautiful. us another dimension. It, oh, makes, it, does, it, it gives it's us another dimension. Amazing dimension. Yeah. 
amazing. And the illustrations, the, the um, paintings of the gods, and this on this double page. Yes. Um, the way you planned it, um, people can't see this, of course, on radio. But when you do open the book and see every double page is enormous. It seems tw- it seems like about four or five pages, really, because it seems so much larger. Because you, you've got the dimensions of these amazing heroes and gods and Maori legends just jumping off the page at me and I've never really read any Maori legends where I've had these these wonderful illustrations to talk to. <laughs> right, right. You know, that, that for me, it, it, the artwork is outstanding, Gavin, and um, I, you must feel so satisfied. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I am really pleased with it. I am really, really pleased with it and I, I'm very pleased with the structure that sort of just it's, it fell naturally into the structure. It wasn't a struggle no. to get it to, to fit into those pages. And the, the overall story, the overarching story, is one of the arrival of these stories to this part of the world. Because these stories were bought here, fully formed by those early Polynesian settlers who were not known as... They didn't think of themselves as Maori. They thought of themselves as individual groups of people, iwi, different hapu. They did not think of themselves as one people. And they lived in various parts of um, New Zealand or Aotearoa, and it wasn't even called Aotearoa then. It was, they had different names for different parts of the, of the country. Um, and the idea and of, of... Yeah. Go on. The idea of being Maori was something that came later when Europeans came here. Um, Those are the kinds of things, small detail, but not small detail, um, but little details that I have really overlooked most of my life, I think. Um, And I, you know, I, um, being a strong feminist, um, I didn't know anything about the first woman who produced all girls. Um, I I didn't know anything about that. Never thought about it. Well, there's some quite difficult issues in this book. I mean, the, these stories were never meant for children. There, was, there, were, there no. were stories. There were stories to make sense of the act of the natural world around these people, around around their lives, and they told these stories to help themselves understand uh, why things happened and and why things were the way they were. Um, and so, therefore, there are some issues in these stories that I just had, I couldn't avoid. I could not leave them out. And the incest one is one of those things where uh, Tane Mahuta um, unknowingly married one of his daughters and um, they had a whole lot of children. And it was only when she found out that her husband was also her father, she was so disgusted and outraged by it that she left him and her children and went into the underworld and became uh, Hine Nui Te Po, the goddess of death. And that's where she she went there and she, you know, according to Māori uh, legend, she is still there receiving the dead when they go back to Papatiranuku, the earth mother. 
her grandmother. And so I couldn't avoid that. I had to put that story in because it's so powerful. So there's a bit of explanation, a bit of explaining, I should say, um, that some parents and teachers are going to have to do when they read the story <laughs> to children. Well, it, I feel it's for everyone. I see it as, you know, I don't I know what be. age group, but I, I think it would be wonderful. I wish my um, my grandchildren were still a little bit younger, um, but now they'll enjoy it even more, I think. But I, I don't know, but I just would love to have read this with them, and I don't think they'll want me to do that anymore. But um, I think when they see it, they will be just as gobsmacked as I was, am. Mm. Right. So right. it seems to be, um, I don't know, it just seems to be the right, the way you've done it, it couldn't have been more perfect really. And it's just so beautiful. And I just sit and, you know, I just sit with it open and I have it at a different open page every day and just try to take in um, the illustrations first and then read the story later um, to remind me of yeah. the sort of um, superficial knowledge I really did have when I thought I knew quite a lot <laughs> before I opened well, this book. So it's just um, a brilliant piece of illustration and writing and uh, it's just for everyone, I think. And um, I think it's just so fascinating, it's informative, it's beautiful, and it's a spectacularly illustrated non-fiction book. And um, like I was thinking, what other book do I have on my bookshelf that I think is absolutely has to be there, that's quite different, and that's Michael King's History of New Zealand. And um, I think this is very, very different, but it's one that I will always be looking at. So thank you, Gavin. You've just done a magnificent um, work in this. I don't know where you would go from here. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, it's some, you're able to do little books for children, small ones, uh, with not too much text, stories, and then you can produce these kind of books. And there aren't too many people in New Zealand with um, anywhere, I imagine, with the skills to illustrate. And I guess it's partly your Māori back, background and you're yeah. proud of, obviously proud of that. And um, yes, that's just become stronger and stronger, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. So thank you to um, Penguin Random House for producing this book and for giving uh, Gavin a nudge (laughs) or a challenge. Um, Probably (laughs) good that it was lockdown last year. Yes, that's right. I I did a lot of it during lockdown. Mm, That's right. So thank you very much. Look for Māori... Gods and Heroes, Atua, Māori Gods and Heroes by Gavin Bishop. It's a must. Thank you so much. Thank you. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.